you have heard of the Manning Cast, well, I would like to welcome you to the Gallo Cast. The Gallo Cast is two of the top brothers in compliance, Nick and Gio Gallo, talking compliance. In this podcast series, we bring them together for a free-form exploration of compliance topics. It's great insights brought to you from the co-CEOs of Ethico. Fun, witty, insightful, with a dash of the two brothers throughout. I know you'll enjoy the Gallo Cast. The Gallo Cast is a production of the award-winning Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back with the brothers Gallo, Gio and Nick, back from SCCE, getting ready for Thanksgiving, no doubt, at dinner at the Gallo's house is always quite the event. We're going to give everybody a taste with another episode of GalloCast. I'm going to try to get out of the way and let you guys go. But I have to ask, right before SCCE, you make a very public announcement that you've rebranded the in a way that I thought was great name, really my opinion as a consumer of the former brand name communicated to me how much more you've expanded out from simply a hotline reporting system, et cetera. What I'd like you to do is maybe talk me through your process. How did you decide to do this? How did you come up with a name? How did you work through the rebranding of company assets? And then how did you decide to make this announcement and what have you heard from the marketplace? So rock yeah. on. Yeah. So let's start by just talking about how we got here and then we can give you a little bit of the process of the transformation. But when Nick and I got to this company, it was called Compliance Line, basically the name that it was given in the late 1900s when it started as a hotline. And when we got here, it already expanded to providing software for investigations and case management and sanction screening and third party monitoring. And since then we've added a bunch of other things to this suite because we're trying to build toward a single platform where compliance and ethics experts don't have to be the general contractor, just working with 17 different tools, trying to put it all together. We've added disclosures and conflict of interest and exit interviews and e-learning and all this other stuff. And it started, we started to realize we were talking about compliance It's in the name. That's cool. But compliance line sounds like a hotline. Go figure. Really, since we got here, right, Nick, we had been saying, hey, you know what? We're really going beyond just a compliance hotline. And we lived with compliance line for a while and saying, hey, we're doing compliance and there's a line in the sand or whatever clever thing we had to make sense of it. But we had always felt a sense that this, when we got here, we were doing more than just one thing. And over time we've done added to our solution set. And that's happening at the same time where in this market, in the mind of compliance leaders and executives and employees, ethics, like talking about an ethical culture in an authentic workplace really seems to be embodying more of this, what we've called compliance 3.0, where it's not just regulatory compliance and keep the boss out of jail. It's not just run your programs efficiently, but actually like the DOJ says, effective programs that benefit all employees, not just the board. So this concept of focusing on ethics paired with broader set of offerings is what kind of led us into this. So Nick, you want to talk about the next step of like how we came up with it? And yeah, it's if it was called Big Mac. So we have a much wider offering. Our solution set has changed and that that's what the impetus was. The process was really like anything I do, grossly underestimated from a difficulty standpoint on the front end. <laughs> I'm always like, oh, how tough could that be? That'll be easy. And then it turns out to be a little bit harder, but actually it's been fun. It's been a Which new, is really a superpower if you think about it, Nick. Well, there are a bunch of people who would really like how far that beach was over to the west. You know what I'm saying? So they did not yeah. think that was going to be that hard of a of a journey. But because a lot of people won't even get off the porch when they're like, ah, some people are overestimated, and they're like, I'll never be able to do this or <laughs> stop. And we just kind of <laughs> jump in and do it. Yeah. Grossly underestimating the difficulty of things. If that's a superpower, then I need a cape. Okay. The process <laughs> was actually pretty interesting. We've been kicking it around for a long time that we need to do something and. I think something like this is really, you have to open your mind for it. Like it's not going to just happen automatically. I think we had been playing around with different names and different logos really for the last couple of years. And Gio, Gio texted me one day and he said, what if we do it? What if we call it Ethico? And I was like, I knew right off the bat. That was it. That was absolutely the name the second I heard it. Yeah, um, I think I might've been even more vague than that. Like I was, I used some time for focused deep work and it was in the middle of it. And I was just like, Hey, Nick, how about Ethico? I wasn't even, what if we rebrand the name? And here's the reason I just said it. How about Ethico? And it was just like, 
we're going for it. And it just launched forward. We loved it. We rolled it out across our team. We got to crowdsource a new slogan, crowdsource new colors, all those kinds of things. And yeah, it's a really exciting time. It's revitalizing our whole company. It's, it, feels, it's, it feels like it's a new era. And it's exciting to be a part of this broader inflection point that I think our entire industry is moving toward. One where we can follow the trail that IT, for example, blazed over the last 20 years where they went from cost center to strategic lever in the company. That's absolutely going to happen. And it's a pretty exciting time to be part of this. So I'm going to read from the press release because I, and I want to follow up with a couple of questions. Under the name Compliance Line, the company's offering expanded exponentially from an in-house excuse me, from an employee hotline service to what is now a full suite of next-gen solutions designed to streamline risk management and empower value-driven professionals. Ethico is not only better describes the organization's offerings and values, but signals the dedication to continuing to grow with the needs of the client. I'd really like to focus on that last clause because you hit on that a little bit, Nick, and it's the incorporation of data into your compliance programs. It's things like looking at what is the return of investment on your compliance program internally. It's things like taking the data and other information generated from your traditional reporting sources and mining that data, not simply to see do we have a problem or do we not have a problem, but <clears throat> refine your ongoing training and communications. I was wondering if you might give a few words about some of the data-driven insights and services that formerly compliance line now ethico is utilizing now and is going to try to develop into the future yeah i think the entire ethos of our company and the entire approach that we try to bring to bear in our marketplace is one of effectiveness this is not a new thing outsourcing non-core functions this has been around for a long time everybody uses nobody has a payroll department anymore ethics and compliance have been relying on some first-gen type solutions that have through that private equity through that external capital washer machine have led to some behaviors that I think ultimately make it more difficult for ethics and compliance and human resource folks to make the case for the value that they provide there is a ton of risk management that we are not gaining access to because we're not crowdsourcing it effectively. There are a ton of insights that we're not even able to get to because our software systems are really just long to-do lists, not smart systems that bring the magnet to the haystack to pull those needles out. And thus, it's a, it, it becomes increasingly difficult, to your point, Tom, for ethics and compliance people, HR-focused individuals to make that case that they have in terms of the value that they're bringing to their business. Building everything onto a true integrated platform allows for a lot of cross-pollination between these data ponds to pull information out and really on the precipice of some really interesting things, I think, over the next couple of years. But I think what allows us to do this, and this is not meant to be a, an ethical commercial, but I think the why behind the what might provide a little bit of a cleaner glimpse into the kind of impact that we think we can have, our goal is to maintain a client relationship for a long time, not by locking them into a weird contract, but by actually adding value to them over that longer period of time. And in order to do that, we have to actually be effective in the solution sets that we bring to bear on behalf of our clients. So that reprioritization, I think, allows for a greater budget for us to do sort of things that might provide better, better insights or at least allow a client to build an apparatus of risk management that can lead to the types of insights that lead to actual leverage within their operation. Yeah, Nick, I mean, it'd have to be, oh, sorry, Tom, just going to say like this thing that we're talking about, crowdsourcing risk management, it's a stance that you have as an ethics expert. It's an idea and approach that you have of saying, hey, there are certain things I can control. I can audit all the times that door opens, or I can put a, a firewall and block someone's VPN or whatever, there's certain things I can control. But if you have a stance as an ethics leader that most of my findings, most of the things that I'm not getting access to right now are not by more automated monitoring and locking things down. It's by engaging your workforce to be hand in glove with you to push forward an ethical culture, not just to lock things down and monitor all of it. And you can see this all over the place. You can see this in the ACFE findings of where where are these instances of fraud found? And it's something like, I don't know, 55 or 65% are from tips. That's crowdsourcing risk management. You can look at the increase 
from in your findings of fraud with training and without training. And it, it goes up, I don't know, 50, it goes up 60% if you have training. That is using your workforce and your people to partner with you in your ethics program. And that's just an attitude. And it just so happens that our software and our solutions and our heart is pointed toward that kind of building of an ethical culture. An ethical culture is at its heart using crowdsource of risk management to get that thing that we've been trying to do for so long, manage risk, but do it through all your people. And if you think that there's not an issue in our economy, then you would be very wrong. So I'm talking about an issue with respect to like how people, the level of trust people have with their organizations. So think about this. The, if you look at any of the benchmark reports that come out there, whether it's ours or it's NAVEX's, there's a extremely high level of stability across like average reports per hundred employees. That is stable over time. But then if you chart that against SEC whistleblower tips, it's absolutely skyrocketing. So what we're seeing is that there is, look, there are orders of magnitude more than four or three or two or one reports per hundred employees. What we're seeing is that this level of distrust is so high that people are prompted on directional basis to go outside the firm a lot more free, frequently now than they were even a few years ago. So this is just, it's like the time is now for us to take advantage of this opportunity to build some actual trust in our workplace. And I think the companies that actually do it are going to be the ones that separate from those who continue to keep playing the same song that nobody wants to hear anymore. Jill, let me change the focus just a little bit. I think most people know you guys, not really origin stories, but that you both came for private equity. Both have financial backgrounds. Both came from private equity. And here I'd like to ask, obviously, private equity drives greater efficiencies. But what I see is private equity investing in products companies that create new and different products that a corporate compliance officer can't develop internally. So mm -hmm. I always use myself as an example. Legally trained, general counsel, moved to the CCO chair not a quantitative background, not a coding background, don't think like that, can use those tools if properly instructed. But I was wondering if you could maybe say a few words about innovation and compliance that's coming from areas that may not traditionally be thought of as compliance yet, as you guys both said, it allows a much broader data mining and even crowdsourcing to help your compliance. Yeah, I think I know what you're getting at, Tom. I think that part of this is if a company is run, you might look at who's at the helm of the vendor that you're buying from or who is on the cap table and owns that company. If it's run by someone just looking to make some money, hawking some goods to this part of the industry and they're different, whether they're selling to manufacturing or compliance or whatever, then it's probably going to be a little bit of that. Let's see if we can sell something. It's probably going to be underbuilt and not very innovative and stuff like that. Whereas if you talk to your friends in compliance and you talk about what are your problems and if somebody with product focused mind or knows technology or knows how to build services and solutions is looking at that, you're going to come up with a different set of things. You're not going to just say, hey, why don't we use a customer service system and use this for a compliance audit or something like that? You're going to be looking at, hey, how do we solve these problems? And the framework that we look at it as is there are three big things that you can get help with as a compliance leader. You can get help with your administrative work. You can help with your like actions and your workflows and like the standardizing and accelerating things you need to do. And you get help with your analytics. None of those things are like that require 20 years of experience and all your training and all of that. There's a bunch of stuff that you can scale forward with that and you can build products around it. So that's one focus that if you're trying to help compliance and ethics leaders, you can build products to do that. We have workflows in our software and we tie things across products and we automatically drive insights and stuff like that. But also if um, you're not just looking through that lens and you're looking at how do we build an ethical culture, you're going to start to do things like we started doing exit interviews. That's traditionally been a HR focused activity because that's around hiring and firing people, not around risking the organization. There's a lot that you can discover to use that crowdsourcing of risk management in that interview of someone who no longer is fearful of retaliation or as much or whatever. And I think that in order to get to those innovations that are really going to have a stepwise change in the productivity and effectiveness of compliance leaders, you really need compliance and ethics focused innovation, not just financial leverage and a focus on innovating so that you can charge some more money. All right, let's change topics to, we had one major FCPA enforcement action coming out of the Securities and Exchange Commission, and it was Oracle. A books and records 
violations. Oracle is now a two-time loser, i.e. recidivist. Lots of interesting things came out of this enforcement action. One of the countries in 2022 enforcement action was the same country and bribery scheme as the original one in 2012. We had travel, which hadn't been an FCPA violation. We haven't seen anyone do that because the rules have been in place since 2007, and I thought everybody knew them. But that from that enforcement action you guys saw, or you're talking to your client. The thing that really stood out to me was two things that you alluded to. It's happening in the same spot, and 10 years later, it's happening again. It's a pretty bizarre, I, I don't know, is it bizarre? I don't know. I just, to me, it speaks to the need to constantly kick a process off of like continual improvement, continual focusing and moving away from the study and mentality that a lot of us fall into. We run our business on a plan, do, check, act flywheel. That's been the basis for all the growth and all the changes and things like that. That's just an operational heuristic, essentially, that can keep you in a mindset of continuous improvement. And I think we all, at least in theory, want to want to be doing things like that. It's hard to do at scale and consistently over time unless it's a foundational element of your organization and the ethos on or the ethos of your pursuit of the company's mission. But I think when you can fall into that mode, you can at least decrease the risk of these kinds of things happening. It seems a little silly from my standpoint for the same thing to happen again. Obviously, the controls weren't put in place. Obviously, they weren't put. Obviously, it wasn't effective for the same thing to happen yet again. But I. I think we also, it also underscores this kind of age old thing that ethics and compliance people struggle with, especially in a multinational perspective or in a multi in a multinational context that the cultural things, the cultural amores are going to be different in different jurisdictions and clarity of rules and company policies that are meant to su- to supersede local norms need to be from a risk assessment standpoint, at least those need to be reinforced consistently because Probably a one year, a once a year training about misusing slush funds to pull, to take trips to California along with your family is probably not enough. Yeah, I just, I want to talk about the size of this fine. Tell me if I'm wrong here, Tom, but this was a, was this a $23 million fine? You're- okay. There's, I got two things and one might not be very gracious. One is this is a $186 billion company. I think I'm right about that. If I remember the last time I read the Wall Street Journal. No, I just looked that up. But this is $186 billion company. <laughs> this morning uh, when you read the Wall Street Journal. Yeah, when I I'd go through the full market cap of all the Fortune 1000 each day. But that means like if you have a half million dollars in your 401k, right? Let's say your net worth between or between your house and your savings and stuff, you have a half million dollars. This is the equivalent to a $60 fine. That's what you get fined mm-hmm. if like you don't pay your pay-by-mail tolls on time. So that seems small. Which I'm not saying, listen, if Oracle's listening, I'm sure that matters to you and you don't want to, you don't want those fines. I get it. So maybe it's small, but also out of the other side of my mouth, I think the big thing here is they got an SEC enforcement. I think that there, that has more teeth than the dollar fine that now they're on notice and they, they need to do some stuff to adjust this. It's just a little bit surprising. Maybe it fits the scale of the violation, but I think like the thing that stings, stings bigger is that they got this violation and this is their second time getting it. On the like, what do you do about it? I think it's it's really this challenge of, to me, this is a localization of ethical culture problem because I think that this was for actions that happened in Turkey and maybe some, and the UAE. And, Turkey, you know, I India, think- Turkey, India, UAE, and India. Yeah. Oh, and India. Okay. Yeah. And I think that there's, especially if the SEC is going to be making enforcements like this, I think as leaders of companies doing business in these countries, or like we all have a lot of companies of scale have supply chains that, that touch these areas and have vendors in those areas. You got to know that like, you have to go harder on that training in those areas. Cause you know, I'm just guessing, I bet, I think this is in violation of an Oracle policy. So that old thing, that old compliance 1.0, we have a policy, so it's not our fault. Get mad at the employees. That's not going to happen. They probably have some training around it. So say, ah, we have a policy and we have some training. This is this whole industry is going toward is not just, okay, if you have some plausible deniability, we'll just say, hey, better luck next time. You need to get it right. And you need to be doing, whether it's a risk assessment or just, you know, that like you need to pound this home and you need an especially strong culture of not paying these types of bribes or slush funds in the areas where it might be present. I think you, to me, would say, hey, we got to double down on this and make sure that the assumption that if we train people once a year, it's going to work 
maybe that works in the US and there aren't, there's not a lot of rampant bribery going on, but maybe we need a different stance, a different frequency, different level of reinforcement, a different level of recruiting, mood at the middle, and line passion for this is what we mean by integrity. I, I think this sends that message loud and clear. The Department of Justice has not yet weighed in on this matter. Under the U.S. sentencing guidelines, there's a formula for setting a fine and penalty. So conceivably, we could have some additional fines and penalties. Also, I'm going to be interested to see what the Department of Justice says, if anything, around Oracle's recidivist nature, which leads to the next, perhaps the most major FCPA slash compliance topic that came out in the last quarter is the Monaco memo. Mm -hmm. Lisa Monaco, Deputy Attorney General, she presaged all this last October in a speech to the White Collar Bar Conference of the American Bar Association. But now the speech was reduced to writing in a memo. She gave a speech on it. We had two additional Department of Justice officials expand out. Lots in the Monaco memo. I've written extensively about it. But I really wanted to get you guys' take and maybe what are some of the questions you're getting from your clients around this? How does it impact what they're doing with your products and services? Or what were your thoughts around what Lisa Monaco put in the Monaco memo? I'd love to start with the uh, compensation. Nick and I are big incentives guys. Nick and I are big alignment. I want to talk about this thing where, what do you think, Nick? It says executive compensation should reward good compliance and potentially claw back compensation that's been previously given if they contribute to or participate in corporate criminal offenses. That's got some teeth on it. I don't know. How do you even <laughs> execute that? I like the idea of it. I like the idea that like they're talking. I'm just argue, arguing to argue a little bit here, but it's going to be very challenging. Because this is the Gallo cast and that's what we're yeah, going to yeah, do. Uh, this is how they believe you don't want to come. Gala. The turkey's dry and this is all you get. The clawback model, think about the incentives that creates. If they can actually do it, then in theory, that's going to drive a lot of great behavior because it's hitting guys in their wallet. But I would also imagine that if like any clawback is going to be met with some resistance, especially for a well-comped CEO who at some level is going to have to show that he didn't participate or didn't do it knowingly or whatever. So I think it's a good step forward. I think people respond to incentives and getting those incentives right is great. I am someone who is kind I'm all for kind of the positive reinforcement and giving like bonuses for compliant programs and allowing for compliance folks to, to participate in bonus programs and stuff. I don't think there's a conflict there, or I think it can be done without like me meaningful conflict. I like the signal that the clawback kind of brings to the conversation. I just think like at the end of the day, the actual execution of it, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. It, I think it's going to be more difficult than we think. Let me play lawyer and explain how that pl plays out. There's no state in the United States which allows employees to claw back income once you're paid. Unless you stole that money, you'd never have to pay it back. Now, the only way to claw back money is if you have a, the company has a contractual right to it. Mm. It would not be unusual for senior execs, C-suite, boards, perhaps others, to have a written employment contract and to have a clawback provision in there. If that, if you have a contractual right to do so, a company can do that. Now, we have one great example actually out of the FCPA, and that's Goldman Sachs. Mm. Now, Goldman Sachs, 1MDB, mm -hmm. largest FCPA fine ever, about 18 months after the enforcement action, clawed back over $100 million from executives, including former CEO, Lloyd Blankenfeld, and current CEO as well. It's, it appeared that it was voluntary. I don't know if there was a contractual right to do, but they were successful in clawing monies back, multiple millions of dollars, eight figures from multiple senior execs. So we have a great example in place. I'm not exactly sure of the mechanism. Yeah, it's called the um, Goldman handcuffs. Perhaps. <laughs> but if I'm senior executive at a company and the general counsel calls me in and says, Tom, we're going to rework your employment contract to add potentially a material negative to your contract. Here, we'd just like you to sign that to give us this right. And oh, by the way, we're not going to give you any more compensation for it. I'm going to go, no thanks. Yeah. You don't have the right to terminate me if I don't sign this contract. So I just see a few problems there, as mm -hmm. you alluded to, Nick. The concept is great. Clawbacks have been talked about for some time. So I just want to see how it's going to work in practice. Yeah. yeah. So you're saying, Tom, that they can 
any company that wants to do this can add it as a condition of employment, add it to the employment contract, say, hey, let's sign a new employment contract. We're adding this clause that we can call this back. This memo doesn't supersede the lack of given rights in a state to claw something back without that contract. Yeah, it's probably easier to put in, into place for new con- for new employment contracts versus like reworking existing ones without, there has to be some new consideration probably for a right. new contract to come out. So let's talk about the incentives because I've been a part of this discussion since 2007. The first time I heard incentives for doing business ethically and in compliance, my response as a lawyer, of course, well, how do you measure that? And they said, Tom, you just go down and talk to your HR person because they measure things that perhaps not around KPIs or metrics all the time. And that made a lot of sense to me. And it drove home the message to me that, yes, you can measure that. Sure, you can put KPIs around it, but you can also have a more amorphous category. And so the discussion around positive incentives, it's been around for I don't know how long, but at least 15 years that I'm aware of. And here we are still talking about it in 2022. Why are we talking about positive incentives when you're absolutely right? This is a great driver for compliance, Nick. I don't know. I, I don't know. It's for me. It's it seems like people think like money is like a dirty word when we're all working for money. Like profits are not a dirty word. Mon- monetary incentives are not a dirty word. That 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 experiment. I think it was in the this Caldini book on influence. Maybe it just illustrates that there are some things that if you attach dollar value to it, it ends up cheapening it. If I asked you to come and help me move and we were going to have pizza and beer, that feels different than if I say, hey, can you help, help me move and I'm going to give you 100 bucks. You know what I'm saying? But that does not mean that all sort of monetary incentive is like categorically a bad thing. So it's a little puzzling to me why we're still talking about it to your question. I think in general, incentives are probably like some of the least understood mechanisms in behavioral psychology or behavioral science as they are applied and enacted in business. There's so many perverse incentives that we put into place through our policies and through commission structures, through compensation structures, whatever, that end up actually working the way they're supposed to work, although it's not how we expect them to work. So I I don't know. What do you think, Gio? I think it's super obvious why we're still talking about it and hasn't been done. It's at least two things. One is that the compliance leaders who might say, hey, we should do that, don't have the clout, don't know how to advocate for it, don't know how to influence the senior people, haven't proven themselves to the broader organization to be collaborating on the core strategic missions, right? This is why we do ROI workshops, Nick, to help people understand how to advocate at that level. And I'm going to be cynical. I'm sure there are plenty of people in our industry who are cynical about tone at the top. I think a bunch of people at the top are saying, why would I do that? If I'm going to get someone to focus on something, I want them to focus on growth, not paying them extra for, for being good or something like that. So I think those are two obvious ones and maybe a little cynical, but I think it's like there's at least some trend of that. And I think that part, whether it's positive incentives or kind of the negative with these clawbacks, I think there is this somewhat thorny issue that is probably even harder to accomplish with a legal or compliance mindset of how do you define that? How do you define that completely, objectively, and cleanly, and exactly, and fairly? And I think that's difficult to do if that's your standard for it. I think you can apply some compliance incentives in the positive or negative without being all those things completely objective and exact. But I think that the lack of, I don't know exactly how all that would work and what all the risks around it would be and what might be unfair about doing some of it might lead some people to say, we don't know how to do that. Let's stick to our knitting and go focus on training. It's not really that hard though, to your point. So you can start advocating for, let's, let's put this clause, this, Hey, if we're serious about ethics, we're serious about compliance, we're serious about governance, that G and ESG, we're going to do some things from a top-down basis that reinforce that and that prove that to the employees. So that could be adding a component to people's bonus that's tied to governance or tied to compliance or something like that. It could be putting something in the, that clawback provision in new contracts going, new employment contracts going out. At some level, some of this is form over function because the form will drive the function. The signal from the organization being communicated at some level to the employees in terms of what that organization thinks is important. So it's not going to be flip, flipping a switch, but you know, that like that I'm not going to get off the porch until all the lights going into town are green thing that prevents us from even taking any incremental steps forward, I think is ultimately paralyzing and is contributing to why we're still talking about this 20 years later. Yeah. I mean, it's also probably just, just to cut a little break here in order to have an effective material compensation that is monetary at a decent size size organization would probably dwarf the compliance budget. If a company's spending less than 1% of their total revenue on compliance, 
and you want to say, hey, we want to move the needle. It's not going to be give people 10 bucks for being compliant. It's going to be giving senior people something that's material to them. Then you look at, all right, what are we paying out? Another 200 grand of incentives a year, and that's going to be in the compliance budget. No, I don't uh, imagine that would be the path to it and can be a blocker. No, I think I'm paying out $100 million in bonuses across the board, across these three factors, performance, individual OKRs, and general like sentiment. Now that 100 that hundred million of bonuses across the board now is based on a fourth factor, which is compliance or getting your training done on time or whatever those data points are. So you don't have to actually change the size of the bonus by giving a different piece of attribution to them. That's the answer. Hear that? Write that down, everyone. I get a part of the measurement for your discretionary bonus. Yeah. So significant, Matt. 10%, 20%, significant whatever portion. it might be. I guarantee you pretty quickly, figures are going to change. If, an, if there's a compliance violation in a particular division and that rolls up to the guy who's or the guy or gal who's over that division and they're actually responsible for it, it's going to drive different behaviors. It just absolutely will. If it's a, if it's a, a significant enough influence on that ultimate bonus payout. Next. I've been saving this one for you guys, and it's from the world of the National Football League to a Tonga Valoa, the concussion protocol. So I'm going to review what happened. Yeah. In a game against Buffalo Bills, gets hit, head snaps against the turf, gets up, stumbles, has to be helped up by a teammate, and has to be walked by a teammate to the sideline. He goes into the tent, then he goes into the locker room, passes the, this is on the first half, passes the concussion protocol, comes back out, plays second half, Goes to a game against, I can't remember who, four days later, and first quarter, blow to the head, he's out. One in America, we were all watching that game because it was the Bills and uh, the Dolphins, and we saw him stumble, and we saw him have to be physically helped to the sideline. The question I had initially was how on earth did he pass a concussion protocol? He passed it because if there is evidence that the injury was orthopedic in nature, i.e. not brain injury, you can go back in, and somehow either he said or they suggested well, this was a back injury, and that made it orthopedic so he could go back in. So it was a failure of internal controls. So what do you do when the control doesn't work, number one? And two, are compliance officers required to leave their common sense at the door? Can you trust your eyes? If something doesn't seem right, can you at least investigate it? How do you guys help clients think through those issues which can be quantitative and can be qualitative at the same time. First off, Tom, the control never works. It's always a person that puts the control in place, right? Unless the control is a lock on a door or you, there is no USB port for you to plug this into your computer, right? Like those types of physical things are put in place, but the rest of it is a checklist that someone goes through and someone has to, there's some series of buy-in that you need in order to get from a policy to action, right? The control is a policy, you must do this. And someone could lie and not do it, they could not understand it, they could not fudge it, they could say, hey, you know what, we gotta get Tua back on out there. Hey, are you sure? Are you sure it's not your back? Are you sure? This might be orthopedic, don't you think? Wink, wink, okay, yeah, he said it. Like, the control is executed by humans. And this ties back to how we started this, that like, this is the crowdsourcing risk management is not just about discovering issues, like making people speak up. And I think when we talk about people thinking that, oh, okay, crowdsource, that's someone saying something, adding, being a source of information, the crowd should also be a source of control. And mm -hmm. to do that, you need to, like, people need to know what the rule is, need to know how important it is, need to know that this at times supersede your other goals of let's see if we can get them out there or let's hit our number for the quarter or whatever it is. And you need that buy-in and you need people to understand that this this is part of this transformation from c compliance to ethics this transformation from greenwashing to hopefully this is real esg and stuff is people should understand that this stuff that we're talking the compliance and ethics team is not working against you and your goals we're all working for the same thing i would just start there and say that if you don't have buy-in for the people executing these controls then there it, there's a lot of risk for this happening now i don't know who signed off on it like you said tom we're not sure how that answer got in there. Maybe he said it, maybe they fudged it, whatever it was. But I think the point stands that I think the trainer or somebody was the compliance officer here, right? They were executing this control and they, death to a question that you had, they definitely should not leave their common sense at the door. They definitely should be saying, listen, you know what? This is on me. I got to certify this. And 
if we're not sure if it's one or the other, let's be safe or let's look out for you or let's follow the spirit of this thing, not just our plausible deniability. What do you think about this Tua thing, Nick? I think to Tom's question, do we have to check our, our common sense at the door? At some level, it's a personality type thing. I think some people love the gray and some people struggle with that. Some people gravitate toward more kind of a binary view of things. And I think there's sometimes a false sense of security in your process or in your checklist or whatever that to your point, we need to shed that, that, that warm blanket and use that common sense because it's really at best just a guide. It's a way to standardize things for sure and make sure things are done appropriately. But at the end of the day, it's not going to take place. It's not going to take the place of your brain and the odds of a policy being mutually exclusive and collectively exhaustive of every possibility in the world is basically zero. We have to be able to be com comfortable in that gray and put some safety nets under these tight ropes that these checklists around processes are actually providing. Let's move to a different topic now, almost in the employment arena, but certainly implications in the compliance arena as well. In the pre-pandemic world, almost every company, every large company I work for, including law firms, had a prohibition of outside employment without internal corporate approval. It was somewhat easy to monitor because employees were at the office and they typically worked for their employer at the office. Perhaps they worked a second job at night, but it was most of your office hours were in the office. Obviously, that changed during the pandemic, and we began to hear stories of people taking side gigs while working from home. And now we are back to a hybrid workforce, and we are still having this issue. So having set up the problem, Gio, what do you see either in a compliance issue, a conflict of interest issue, or an internal corporate policy issue? Listen, so I'm going to start with the cultural piece because, I don't know, maybe that's most interesting to me or something. But if you don't realize that there is a groundswell of anti-corporate, labor-friendly attitude across the entire population that's sampling harder in the, the Gen Z and the younger generations coming up, if you don't realize that, then you're going to get caught off guard. Just if you don't realize that, hey, if I'm doing business in this country, it's part of the culture to grease the skids a little bit and give them a spiff and do like little mini bribes. If you don't know that, then you're not going to be able to manage the risk around it. Right. I think you need to realize that there are a bunch of people who are now coming frontline, entry level, moving up to middle manager who have grown up in an environment where they were told – the corporations are the bad guys and they, you don't owe them anything, including being, being honest with them. And they're just going to take from you. So you should take whatever you can. I'm being a little hyperbolic here, but if you don't know that's going on, then you gotta, you gotta know that's there. Like there are a lot of new challenges with this remote thing and there are new challenges with generations. There are new challenges with digitization of the workplace and diverse global supply chains and all of that. We're dealing with that stuff all the time. But if you feel like you're still dealing with the same types of challenges, the same shape of things that you have to get your arms around that you did 10 years ago, it's absolutely changed. And there, there are a bunch of people who I think, I guess part of what I'm saying is this is not just a change in, hey, you can do this now. And it used to be hard to get away with it. And now you can. I think there's a change in sentiment that says, hey, you know what? If I don't get caught and I can tell three different companies that I'm working full time for them and all, for all of them, I'm just spending a couple hours a day each and I'm getting paid th three times as much. That's their fault for being dumb. That's their fault for not knowing what the work is. That That's me being smart. I've even seen these things, advertisements and people just like doing little videos. Hey, look at this thing I found. You can buy this on Amazon and it moves your mouse around on your computer to trick your computer monitoring thing to make sure that you, your computer doesn't go to sleep and the company you're working for thinks you're working. Like that, that's not on the dark web. Like I can't, I'm not going to tell you what I see on the dark web, but that's just mainstream of people saying, Hey, do this and you'll be able to, you'll be able to get away with it. So just that thing's going on and that's happening at a time where most of your managers are not really that good at managing knowledge workers. And most of your managers right. are not really good at making sure that, hey, I know that this is a four-hour job and you could do two of these in a day. And then they're what they used to be like, at least they're here and they might be on Facebook under their desk sometimes, but I know they're at least at work. Now they have no idea. And then you know, their boss is like, hey, what's going on? And then you know, there are a bunch of excuses for it. I think that like from a management perspective, just to know what's going on with your team, it's important, but also from a cl compliance and risk perspective. Listen, it used to be that you only needed to worry about leakage of your intellectual property 
mostly when someone left and you'd say, Hey, make sure that when you go over there, now we know you're working for a competitor. So we got to be careful about this or we'll wipe your laptop or whatever. Now someone has two laptops sitting next to them working for their competitors. And if you don't know that's going on, you need to try to step it up. And you can do that with a bunch of things to get to tactics. You can do conflicts of interest and do training around it and partner with your managers and say, Hey, you're losing efficiency and maybe hiring people who are not really working for you. And there's also a compliance risk in there. Let's work together on this. There are a bunch of things you can tactically do to do it, but you're not going to be figuring out how to do that if you don't realize that this is a challenge that 20 years ago was veritably like unheard of or not like a major worry in a different economy, in a different culture and mindset and a different kind of shape of location of work. Nick? Yeah, I just, it's an interesting problem and it just manifests itself in different ways. It's not, look, people forever have had, I remember reading about back in the day or hearing about a guy who had a family in one city and a family in another city. That was pre-pandemic. That's the same thing. You know what I'm saying? People are always going to try to take advantage of the systems that are in place. At least, at least some portion of people are. And it raises an interesting question of how do you solve for it? Do you hire more on sort of like culture, ethos, kind of principles, or do you sort of overlay a bunch of controls and hope that those added controls are going to fix things? When my dad was in high school, all you needed to make a fake ID was a typewriter and a stack of those cards. When we were in college, I didn't do this, but like you had- No, of course not. You had a, you needed Photoshop and you needed a laminator and you had to get the holograms, supposedly, in order to make a fake ID. So I'm just saying, you think people don't have fake IDs now? Of course they do. As the, te the technology evolves, the ways to beat the technology continue to evolve to Gio's point about finding something on Amazon that'll move your mouse every couple of seconds so that your people think that, so that your organization thinks that you're actually working. We're not gonna eradicate people taking advantage of systems for sure. I think it's the challenge of the knowledge work manager, the knowledge work organization to figure out ways that at scale can maintain and select in the people that are going to be going to put values above selfish interests. And obviously there's no silver, silver bullet for that, but it just takes a cohesive prioritization of values over other things in the sort of value creation equation that we're all kind of living through. But in the pre-show, Tom, we were talking about quiet quitting. And I think there's such an interesting reaction that people have on quiet quitting. And you seem to not really like that term. Before I go into that, I'm going to say two things. First of all, that was the beauty of draft cards, no picture, just your birthday. Number one, when there were draft cards and they were accepted as a proof of age ID. Yeah. Number two, yeah. Number two, Geo, what I heard you say was this is a new risk. And it's a risk that now everyone needs to assess. And if you're not, first of all, if you're not aware of it, you can't assess it. But if you, now that you're aware of it, you need to assess it within your own organization. And it's not a new business model. It's not a new geographic territory. It's not a new KYC. It's a completely different type of risk. It, I hope people will think, what are some potential risks we didn't have before? Yeah, so let me get this straight. I work eight hours, I do everything you've asked me to do, you come and say, we need you to work another hour today. And I say, no. And somehow that's a negative. You asked me to work on the weekends and I say, no. And somehow I'm now accused of bad. This whole thing around quiet quitting, frankly, to me, sounds like a bunch of right wing pro management nutbags sitting up in on high. How can we squeeze every available ounce out of people and not pay them more to, and then okay. you criticize people for this. So let me just read some quotes from an article I was researching. I used to check my email at night and weekends. I used to answer reference questions. That's not a part of my job. I did it because I was encouraged to, I didn't want more money. Now I say no. Why should I give all extra to my company? When was the last time my company went out to give extra to me? Oh, they say you have a job. If they want more, they should throw in more. I don't understand why people who do what they have been asked to do and what their job description is now somehow are accused of quitting when they're just simply doing their jobs. They're just not doing more. Yeah. 
So I'll start with yeah, that. I think, you know, first of all, it probably is a bunch of right wing nut jobs trying to squeeze everything they can out of the planet because that's what most of our problems come from. But <laughs> also, I thought quiet quitting was something different. So you and I might have different TikTok streams because I thought I, I didn't know that was quiet quitting. Yeah, I thought quiet quitting was like, I'm just not doing any work for three days and I'm going to wait or I'm going to do an hour of work and say that I did eight hours of work and hope that nobody notices. So I think it's probably something in the middle, or at least my understanding of it from my TikTok algo is something in the middle. And it is really an engagement question. So I think it's a silly, it's a silly in the sense to the extent that quiet quitting is really just about employee engagement, then it's a silly term. It's a reinvention of something that has been plaguing our economy for a really long time. And so our global, the global engagement rate across everywhere is like somewhere between 65 and 68%. That is a wildly low number. You look at a company like a WD-40 and that company had 94% engagement rate. That is probably as high as you can like reasonably get. And so what that shows in there is that there's 30 points of engagement between what's possible and what the average company is utilizing. And obviously the average is there's some a little above and there's some even lower than that. And so when I think about quiet quitting, I think it's an employee engagement perspective. I don't think, I think the percentage of people, put it in another way, the percentage of people that are more than 80% engaged is like wildly low. The company is paying 100% of somebody's salary, hoping to get 100% of their effort. I think some of the things you described, Tom, are definitely outside of that, that 100% or whatever that sort of natural rate is. But I think this broad conversation speaks to this thing that Gio and I have been talking about for the last couple of years. The structures that are in place, the things, the foundational elements of our management systems and approach to business are really rooted in this industrial revolution that was the basis for this top-down pyramid, this like militant style of management that drove us through the industrial re revolution and served as the basis for all of our war and expansion and things like that. Those are all pieces of the puzzle that are sort of vestigial overhangs of our current structure that don't, to Gio's point, work in a knowledge work economy where we are our work and the lines between work life and home life are all but dissolved, especially in a work from, from home new normal that we're in right now. So it's just more proof and more fodder for the distrust people have for organizations, the pitting against the workforce and those fat cats at the top who are trying to squeeze every last penny and ounce of effort out of folks, it just drives that division more and more. And I think whether you want to call it quiet quitting, whether you want to call it an epidemic of low employee engagement, whether you want to talk about the gap between the employer brand and the external brand that all the marketing dollars go to, we're talking about one thing here. And we're talking about a level of distrust and really a lack of belonging that people have to their organization. Tom, you run your own business. You've worked in a, probably a dozen other different things and engagements. Let me speak for myself. I worked all, all over the place. There were some things that were really in my Q zone that I was pedal to the metal and I was blasting forward on and I, was, I didn't mind working overtime because I was so engaged in it. And then there's other things and other engagements where I felt taken advantage of. I didn't feel like my voice mattered. I felt like I was just another cog in this, this soulless machine. I was super disengaged in that and I can guarantee you I was really looking at the balance sheet of my time and effort relative to what I was getting out to a much greater degree. And I think that's really the core of what we're talking about. And you know what? I just don't think that it's a realistic thing to put expectations on people to answer their emails all the time. There was a time where a letter came and you drop what you were to read that letter and you would respond to it that night. And then when the phones came, you would drop what you're doing to have that conversation. Now it's, we've tipped that scale. We're bombarded with phone calls and emails and all of those other things. And it's began the new generation of worker regardless of actual generation they're from, they're prioritizing a little bit more balance in their life. And they're prioritizing a little bit more mental health and things like that are going to be over the long run. Again, that's why I'm always talking about, that's why Gio's always talking about the best thing we can do, the most important thing we can do as leaders, leader being somebody who's willing to be an example and to set that example for those around us. The most important thing we can do as leaders is build workplaces on true integrity that put people first, because that's the only way in a knowledge work economy to get those positive exter externalities that were easy to get in the industrial revolution economy by just dialing in tolerances and shifting, shift, shifting work shifts around to better match demand and all those sort of mechanical things that drove the, the outsized output from our country in that last era.
Or just like desperation makes it easy to do that, right? Good point. Right after the Great Depression, when anyone was happy to get a job, even sweeping the porch, it's easy to get a bunch of engagements. Thanks for the job. So glad to be here. Really glad that I'm not out on the street and stuff like that. But it's just, it's very different now. People can get a job sitting on their couch doing whatever they want or not doing it. And I think that you got to know that you're competing for something different now. You're not competing against the natural limits of how quack fast a machine or a production line can go. You're competing against the, the propensity for an employee to feel like you're probably not going to do right by me. And you have to compete against that with culture, not with machines and Six Sigma. Look, the pendulum's always swinging back and forth. And so to the extent that desperation drove that, that heart from a corporate perspective that said, you're lucky to get a job, guess what? It's swinging back the other way. So if we can land mm -hmm. somewhere where organizations understand that it's their job to keep that person engaged, some of that responsibility falls on the organization. This is not a, a, yeah. a, a work camp that people are in jail for, you know what I'm saying? People volunteer to come to work at, Eth at Ethico every day. They're not compelled to do it. So it's on us to make sure that our workplace is one that's providing value, that's providing opportunities for folks, and that is meeting their needs as much as, it is, as, as, much as the responsibility is on each of the teammates here to quote unquote keep their job and make sure that they're adding ample value. It's a two-way transaction. It's not this one-way thing. And to Gio's point, listen, when labor mobility was super low and the cost of changing a job involved you packing up your house and moving to a different city or state to pursue an opportunity, that power was disproportionately on the employer side. All that stuff is gone now. You can get a new job by just getting a new laptop and going and sitting at the exact same kitchen table that you've been sitting at for the last six months in a toxic work environment that doesn't value your output. It's just, it's the new normal. And it's, this is why we keep going back to like organizations that get it are going to at an exponential rate from those who don't get it and those who are playing catch up and trying to put more screen monitors in into place to make sure that they're working work from home so people are actually working as you can tell i get a little ranty and a little ravey about this topic because it's it's like the plight of our existence right now or something you've used the word responsibility could i suggest another word opportunity totally that if you have the war if you have the opportunity to either Garner more engagement, re-engage your employees by talking to them, listening to them, working with them. It does give you perhaps a way to not simply resolve an issue or manage a risk, but maybe move to a different as well. Gentlemen, we're right at an hour. Great episode. Before we leave, could somebody tell me the new Ethico website? Yeah, ethico.com, just as it sounds, E-T-H-I-C-O.com. And uh, yeah. Hit us up anytime. We love your work and love to help anyway. We great. I look forward to our Thanksgiving edition. See you guys. Thanks for having us. It's been great as always, Tom. Thank you. Thanks for joining us, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Gallo Cast. I'm going to link to contact information for Nick and Geo Gallo in the show notes, as well as Compliance Line. If you need hotline services or other compliance services, I hope you will check out compliance line as they have a full suite of services. Also check out the ethics verse on compliance line, which appears each Thursday with a new topic hosted by Matt Kelly and Nick and Gio Gallo. I hope you plan to join us next month for another episode of the Gallo cast. And I hope you enjoyed this as much as Nick Gio and I had recording it and bringing it to you. The Gallo Cast is a production of the award-winning Compliance Podcast Network.